If you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, I'll start reading in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. At the beginning of each year, uh, we have had the habit of doing what I call a state of the pulpit, a riff on the idea of the state of the union address. And the idea is to uh, give a sense of where we've been and where we're going. To take stock and set a vision, if you will, to lay my cards on the table for you as your pastor uh, about what I hope to see happen as a church. In 2019, I had only been here for a month and a half or so, and I put forward three uh, pillars, if you will, three emphases that we should have as a church. The first being prayer, and in line with that, we began our church prayer meeting. Second was the ministry of the Word, that everything would be centered around the Word, that this would be a Word-driven ministry. And number three, that we would focus on equipping the saints, equipping you for the work of ministry. In January of 2020, we reiterated those values, those objectives, and added two to them, that of discipleship and unity. And while I think we've made strides in each of those areas, we'll never be perfect in any of them, and we still need to reiterate those. I'm just grateful that at the beginning of 2020, we had unity as a goal, as as kind of an overarching umbrella term for what we were really pursuing. Little did we know what the Lord had in store for us. So... I won't take up 
precious time uh, talking about how I plan and hope that we reiterate and double down on those things, those five different areas of emphasis. That's one of the reasons you should read your emails so that uh, you actually hear the things that I wish I could say on a Sunday morning, but I don't want to keep you here for three hours. So more will be coming out about how I hope to lead our church and redouble our efforts in those areas. Like I said, I think it was the Lord's grace and providence that unity was a major focus for us leading into 2020. I began hearing people other than myself talk about the need for unity and the priority of unity, and not just in the face of disunity. Unity as a goal in and of itself, that we need to make strides for more unity in the body of Christ. That's when I knew that we had uh, set the train on the tracks in the right direction. And the need for prioritizing unity, once again, is the reason this text was chosen this morning. We're in the middle of a study of the book of Hebrews, not that many of you needed to know that. Um, And we're covering verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. And the key exhortation of those verses is looking to Jesus. We run the race with endurance that God has set before us as we look to Jesus. We lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely by looking to Jesus. We do it all by gaining strength through our direct apprehension of Christ. And so we obey. And really... uh, Looking to Jesus is exactly how Paul teaches in Philippians 2. As we look to Christ, as we see his behavior, his heart, his motivations, it is instructive to us of how we are to live, how we are to love, how we are to pursue unity. This is, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, a world-defining text. And if I ever come to preach through Philippians, a text like this will merit multiple months of examination. And that's not as startling as it sounds. If you spend 45 minutes a week for two months, that's less than seven hours. This text deserves at least that much. So we won't be able to cover everything that's in these 11 verses. Uh, We'll be focusing on what I think is the main point of the text, which is this, the imitation of Christ in our love for one another. The imitation of Christ in our love for one another. That's the main point. That's Paul's main point. And I hope that will be made clear as we move through it. The title, as you can see, is Having the Same Love. Remember, This is repentance and growth in view of the struggles of the prior year, perhaps, as we look to Jesus. You can think about it this way. This is a major, perhaps even the most significant application of the exhortation in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. As we look to Christ, as we seek to run our race that's set before us with endurance, here's the number one way that that manifests or how that results in your life. A life that looks to Christ looks like this in Philippians 2. So let's jump right in. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. And we'll stop right there. Paul is appealing to the Philippian church that if they've received any benefit at all from the gospel, which he brought to them and ministered the gospel to them, then they should take what they have been given and make his joy complete. He says, complete my joy. If you've received any benefit from this gospel I brought to you, then in turn, complete my joy. And the exact way that he wants them to complete his joy is seen in the next phrase, but let's consider this concept here first. Why would Paul ask them to complete his joy? Here's an idea of what he's, he's saying. If you have any consolation from Christ, if you have any comfort from knowing that Jesus loves you, if you have any strength or power or faith or ability by the power of the Spirit, if you have come to know the comfort and sympathy of our Lord Jesus Christ or any other blessing that you've received through your relationship with Christ, then this ought to be shared. It's not, uh, it's not like a family budget where you put 10% or 15% or 20% for benevolence or hospitality or giving. We all should do that. But with our, the blessings that we receive from Christ, it's not 10% or 20% or even 50%. It's 100% of all of the spiritual blessings that we have been given are not meant for our own consumption. They are meant to be shared with each other. All that you've been given in your heart, the comfort, the sympathy, the affection from Christ, you're meant to share with your brothers and sisters. You've heard me say, and you'll hear me say many things like this, you are saved and secure in Christ. You are blessed and gifted by the Spirit. You are highly favored by the Father, not primarily for your sake, but for the whole family of God, with Christ Jesus being the eldest. And I'm concerned that many of us may not see this or feel a tug at our hearts that something is off. If you feel in your relationship with the Lord that there's something big missing, that you just can't reach that type of joy and peace and comfort and affection and sympathy that Paul is talking about, maybe it's because you're not sharing it with others. It is not meant to reach its full consummation of joy in your heart if it is all kept to yourself. It won't work. And it is God's mercy that he will prevent you from coming into joy and to commitment if you insist on holding it all to yourself. It would be judgment for him to let you feel safe and secure and happy and joyful keeping it all to yourself. If you're isolated from the family of God and not sharing what you've been given in your salvation, then it's not the joy of the Lord that you feel. And it's not a healthy relationship with God that you have. It's just self-deception. 
Paul is not being selfish when he says, complete my joy. He shows us exactly how even Christ himself functioned in the inmost parts of his heart. That joy that was set before him that we've heard in Hebrews chapter 12 was our joy. His joy was made complete in our joy and goodness. This is Paul acting the same way, living the same way, and appealing to the Philippian congregation that if you want the fullness of joy that is available to you, to you in Christ, then complete my joy by sharing those spiritual benefits. He's not asking for another donation or a private jet or for the Philippian church to build a memorial to him. His joy is complete in, as the church itself starts living their lives in deep spiritual unity with each other. Complete my joy, he says in the next phrase, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There is so much that makes this difficult and so much that the American church does that makes this impossible. You can't do this with 10,000 people you don't know. And we call ourselves members, many in the United States, with, with churches where you can't be of one mind with a group of people like that. You can't obey the scripture unless you know someone, this scripture. This joy-producing kind of Christianity, the kind of Christianity that Paul wants to see in the Philippian church, even as he's most likely in prison, the joy he wants to receive as he wants to hear from them about this kind of Christianity is not through us being in some kind of mystical fellowship with God. Or each of us having a really good quiet time. Or each of us doing great things for God individually. It is through the church having one mind. Having the same love and being fully united. That's the kind of Christianity that Paul wants to see that will complete his joy. He's not interested in hearing about them of any other type of faith. You can just skip forward and read the letter to the Ephesians from John to know that any individual types of accomplishments don't matter that much if they are not done in love. And just read 1 Corinthians 13 as well, but we will keep moving. The unity that we should have with our brothers and sisters in Christ has four characteristics from this text. Number one is being of the same mind. Number two, having the same love. Number three, being joined in soul. That's the, the meaning of that phrase, full of cord. And then number four, being of one mind. And that's a lot. And there are a lot of things to say about each of them. But the word being translated, having one mind and having the same mind, or you could say it this way, having a mind that is one, or having a mind that is the same, it means something like this, a disposition, an opinion, a mindset, even to side with someone in a public setting. And I've titled this message, Having the Same Love, because I think it's important 
uh, to note that this love is special in this verse. When he says having the same love, in the original, love is the only other noun in the verse. So he says, complete my joy, that's noun number one, by having the same mind, having the same love. There are only two nouns, and it's joy and love. All the rest are verbs. Here's a way to uh, word it that gives a sense of how love is central in this verse. Complete my joy by agreeing together in the same love, being united in thinking. I'll say it again. Complete my joy by agreeing together in the same love, being united in thinking. Love is the point, and the rest of the passage intensifies this love. The, the, the having the same mind and having one mind, they function as bookends to show us the centrality of love. He's not repeating himself because he forgot what he said earlier in the verse. He's saying, having the same mind, having the same love, being united in one mind. There are bookends, just like the structure of 1 Corinthians with chapter 13 being in the middle. The rest shows us how we ought to love. Namely, in unity in our thinking and opinions and our souls being knit together through that unity of mind. Yes, unity of mind is important. If you are not walking in unity with your brothers and sisters, even in mind, it calls into question the seriousness of your love. In short, agree to disagree is not an option in the church as a long-term solution. You think that will be the case in heaven? Agree to disagree? Is that the kind of unity that Jesus prays for in John 17? Even as you and I are one, make them one here so that the world will know that you sent me? Agree to disagree, Father and Son? No. This is the glorious goal. And if this is the glorious goal of the redeemed people of God, to be fully perfected in love and unity of mind, then the church meaning your relationship with your brothers and sisters in this room ought to be one of progressing towards unity of mind and heart and soul. Here I will voice some of your objections that I know you have. Well, it would be easy to be of one mind if all these people would just stop being so wrong. If y'all would stop being wrong, it'd be really easy for me to be united with you. We may never say it that way, but that's the net value of our attitudes. And it's not, these aren't one-offs. This is most of the time. We resist progressing towards unity because we view everyone else as being wrong. And if only they would agree with us, then we would be united with them. In short, that's not a good objection. That doesn't work in the household of God. Second objection. Well, truth is really important, isn't it? Yes? Amen? We can't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. Let me ask a question. That's a very valid point. But 
Let me ask this. Is it really our different views of truth and logical arguments and long lines of reasoning that cause disunity? What causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And James goes on and on. It is not logical differences between us. It is our passions at war within us that cause disunity. Objection three. Surely we can't agree on everything. Batman is the best superhero ever. There's no argument. If you don't agree with me, I guess we can't be unified. We got Cowboys fans and Seahawks fans in the room. Can we agree on which one is the better franchise? Maybe this year. Surely we can't agree on everything. Of course not. But here's the point. Anything that significantly intersects your view of the meaning of life, the purpose of the church, right and wrong, God's holiness, and what the life is that pleases Him should be areas that we are willing and eager to find agreement. Anything that significantly intersects those things, you should be seeking unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be of one mind. And then objection number four. But the Bible says, fill in the blank. I've met many people who will try to argue and will argue till they are blue in the face that a particular second tier or third tier issue is in fact what the Bible says. But I have met very few people who are willing to re-examine their views fully in the light of all scripture. The Bible is infallible. Your views about it are not. The Bible is clear. Your interpretations, presuppositions, and thoughts about it are not. The Bible is the final authority. Your view or the views of your favorite authors or pastors are not. So what does this have to do with love? If love is the point, what does this all unity of mind have to do with love? Well, don't you see the point? Paul is unwilling to let us define Christian love on our own terms. And we all do that. We all say something to the effect, I love you, I'll do anything if you need me to do it. Just ask, I love you, I feel a certain way towards you. Love can be a feeling or it can be theoretical. Well, if one day one of my brothers or sisters in Christ would need this, well, surely I would give that up for them. I would serve them in this way. But love for Paul, and thus it must be so for us, is seen in sharing the same mind and being fully united in all things that really matter. That's love. He won't let us define it on our own terms. It's not a feeling. It's not a theory. It is unity of mind. Our souls being knit together through our con- shared conviction as to the truth and what is really important. The mind, therefore, is the litmus test for love. Do you have this mind? Don't lie to yourself and ignore significant evidence to the contrary. Do you have this mind? 
among yourselves towards your brothers and sisters. What do you do if you don't? In short, look to Jesus. That's the point in Hebrews 12, and it's the point here. How does this love, how does this unity of mind and soul look? What what does it look like in our day-to-day lives? And Paul answers us very quickly, so we don't define love on our own terms again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's almost a rhetorical flavor to the statement. It almost could read something like this. No selfish ambition. No conceit. Remember, the reason we're talking about this is is this mindset that Paul is uh, presenting to us is the way he defines love. This is what love looks like for Paul. It's not a feeling. It's not a theory. It is doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The Bible, when you let it speak, won't let you define love in a theoretical or feeling way. Love here is defined as a mindset, an attitude, an absence of certain behaviors, and the presence of others. And what are they? No selfish ambition, no pride in oneself. It could also be translated no self-esteem. Humility, a low opinion of oneself, an accurate opinion of oneself, really is what it is. Strong's translated it this way, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Deeming others more significant than ourselves, and this is not tricking the mind to make us think that they are in a pretend way. This is a real conviction of the mind that leads to action. Count others, consider others more significant than yourselves. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't consider it uh, equality with God staying in heaven and all the privileges there. He didn't consider that. He didn't deem that something as worth holding on to, but gave it up. It wasn't tricking his mind to think that that wasn't worth holding on to. It was a conviction of his heart to let it go. Consider others more significant than yourself. It is a deep conviction of the heart that they actually are. With the same eagerness, sorry, with the same eagerness that you look out for your own needs, look out for the needs of others. So that sounds nice and easy until you read Acts and realize what kind of love and life he's actually talking about. Those summary passages of the type of unity they had with one another and how they were giving up their possessions and giving to any who had need, laying everything at the feet of the apostles. That's what it means to not look out to only our own interests, but to the interests of others. This also means a little bit something that's a little bit harder for us to swallow. If you're not living this way, 
If you're only really looking out for our own needs and interests, if it's only really your preferences that matter or your rights, constitutional or otherwise, if it's only your nice-to-haves that matter, if it's only your way that you like things to go, if it's only your own ideal life setup, if it's only your own retirement, if it's only your own kingdom or career or dreams or passions, if it's only your own hobbies... If it's only your own legacy with your family, if it's only your own education or your vacations, if it's only your own pristine house, if it's only your own peace and security, if it's only your own savings goals, your personal fitness goals, your own resolutions, your own marriages, if it's only our own theological understanding, if it's only our own quiet time, if it's only our own relationship with the Lord that we're prioritizing, if we seek these things that are our own and not seek the things that are our brothers and sisters who need the very same things, if everything we do is in some significant way in orbit around our own fill-in-the-blank, then we're not walking in love. It's not love. The church cannot be, must not be, and will fall apart if it is, a loose collection of people who have their acts together somewhat, so as to not ask for or need much help from each other, and thus not feel the need to give this kind of, host, uh, of humble, costly love to each other. But surely this is not what all of us need to do. Surely you're making it sound more serious or costly than it is. Surely this is something just for the, the, the super-Christians among us. No. Paul continues, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Some translations say, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This mind, this perspective that Paul is talking about, is found in the life of love of Jesus Christ. When he says, have the same love, or having the same love, he's not saying all of you should love the same thing, or all of you should have the same feeling of love in each of you. He's saying, have the same love that Jesus Christ has. Have none other than the love of Christ itself. And that love, brothers and sisters, is not an emotion or feeling. It is a mindset, a conviction that leads to action. Jesus did not remain in heaven. That is the point of this passage. He counted it not worth something to, not something worth holding on to. All of that privilege and rights and communion with God and nearness with the Father. And he gave it up for the sake of love for us, his people. So yes, it is a serious and costly mindset. I'm trying to make it out to be that way. 
And it is for everyone because this is the example of Christ. The life of love of the Messiah obligates all of his followers to walk as he walked. And the way he walked was one of humility and love, not seeking his own. This mind, this love, is how we can have unity. And it is ours in Christ. This is what we should do if we don't have this kind of love. If we don't share this mind, look to him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. He has made it available for you to have. As you, as Hebrews 12 says, look to him. There's a transforming power of beholding him in his love that we begin to act and love like he did. The mind is not some, this mind, this mind we're supposed to have is not something we can create. It is ours through him and in him. You can't pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps and love like Jesus did. It is only from him that you can ever have that kind of love. But it is your responsibility to look to him, to contemplate his love and his sacrifice and make sure that it starts transforming your heart. The gospel, for those in this room who may not know Christ, is that, you know, the world talks a lot about love. The world talks a big game about love. Love is love. We love love. Stupid. But really, in the world, there's just a famine of real love. And what we're saying, friends, is that Christ is the source Look at him. He loved purely and infinitely and laid down his life so that we could share in that same love. And I know that the church often does not look like a group of people that share that same kind of love, but at least try to join us because we know that it is only in him that we can love that way. We love because he first loved us. We're trying. And it is only in him that this love can be found. Join us in confessing that we lack love, but that he is an ocean of love. Consider what he did in this mindset, this deep, deep love. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is why I ask that we would sing stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He did that from love. He laid it down. He humbled himself further beyond the deepest point of abasement for you out of love. This text, what I just read, is perhaps top three or top four most profound texts in all of Scripture. And this is the main section that would take weeks and weeks to unpack. But Paul's main point is this. Through teaching about Christ, 
He wants us to know Christ rightly and his person and his work, but he wants us to result in imitating him. And if you're not walking in this kind of selfless love and humility, if knowing being honest with, if no one being honest with you, sorry, could detect the humble love of Christ at work in your heart, then it doesn't matter so much if you can articulate the theology at work in this great passage. His example hasn't hit your heart yet. The example of Christ, what is being held out before us all in his sacrifice, in his humility, is love like that. This mind is yours in Christ. If you have no real tangible interest in living out this mind of Christ, no pursuit of it, I know that none of us are perfect in love. And none of us will be until glory. But if you have no real tangible interest, no real seeking, no real journey to make this mindset yours with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then can you really say that you understand the sacrifice of Christ at all? It hasn't changed you. It hasn't made you want to be like him. That's the effect it's supposed to have according to this. And the main verbs in this text, he emptied himself and he humbled himself. This mind, this humility is not a trick that we play on ourselves to kind of convince ourselves that something's true when it's not. It is not a feeling of the heart or even negative emotions about ourselves or positive emotions to others. It is a deliberate act of the will to empty ourselves, and to humble ourselves. And so following Christ's example, the exhortation would be to humble yourself. Sometimes when we speak about humility, it's almost like a, a, a trap that once you think you have humility, when you think of yourself as being humble, you're no longer humble. And it's this kind of state of mind that we got to trick ourselves into, but that is not the example of humility in Christ. It is something he did He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. It is things you do, brothers and sisters, that makes you humble or not. That from the courtroom of God would say, humble or proud. What you do for your brothers and sisters, just like Christ did. Have you humbled yourself from love? What does this have to do with the mind of Christ? What does this have to do with the same love that we are to have? First, pride or thinking of yourself and your views and your worth as something more than it is or as just something in general is the enemy of love. Pride kills love, to put it shortly. Pride or esteeming yourself and your views and your ideas and your freedoms and your rights is the opposite of the mind of Christ. You cannot think of yourself highly at all and follow the example of Christ. It can't be done. That's clearly what it says. We act like it's not. We're in a world of self-esteem, of honor, of success, of experience, of accomplishments, knocking things out of the park, all this stuff that builds our own 
perception of ourselves in our minds, but thinking of ourselves highly is the opposite of the mind of Christ. You cannot be impressed with yourself or your accomplishments and walk in love. Can't be done. They don't work together. The heart of Christ expelled all those things that were His by right. He didn't have to earn them. He didn't have to squalor around in the earth like we do to earn some type of reputation or honor. He's the one who created the universe. They were His by right, but His heart expelled His own view of that esteem and glory that was due to Him and walked in humility, emptied Himself, and loved us. And He did it all for the sake of the glory of God and our eternal good. Therefore, Paul continues, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Again, there is so much to say on this text. This would take another few weeks. I won't even try to briefly explain how significant this is. For me, I have vivid memories of when I understood what this was saying about the purpose of the universe. But what are we to say from this text about this main idea in view, this idea of having the same love? Well, let's ask an important question. Did Paul forget what he was talking about? He begins by saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being a full accord in one mind? Did he forget what he was talking about and then just start talking about Jesus? No. Paul is a genius, if you haven't figured that out from the Bible yet. He didn't forget what he was talking about. He interrupts himself a few times, like in Ephesians, but this is not one of those instances. He picks right back up with the line of reasoning in verse 12. So if he isn't interrupting himself, then think of it this way. The sufferings of Christ are the divine proof of the love of Christ for us. So that's the first step. Is this not what we are to do? We're supposed to look to Christ and His sufferings, to see Him in our mind's eye or the the beholding of our heart that there's Christ hanging on the tree for me. I therefore can know for certain that Christ loves me. God offers him as the divine proof that Christ himself loves us. But this doesn't take us off the hook. See, here's the next step. It doesn't let us say, well, Jesus loved the church this way, so we wouldn't have to. At least there's one person in the universe who loves the church, the people of God, with with humility and not esteeming himself highly, but for the sake of others, gave of himself. At least there's one person, and his name is Jesus, who has done that. So I guess I don't have to. No, we're to follow his example and love with the same love. That's what This means having the same love. You're to love one another with the very love of Christ. Just as Jesus prays in John 17, the love with which you have loved me be in them and I in them. 
Number two, here's how we know that Paul didn't forget about what he's talking about and how the exaltation of Jesus is an encouragement for us. The reward of Christ is a picture and a promise of the reward that awaits those who will follow his example and love like him. Do you get that? This is where we know that it's not just Paul going on with the doxology about the greatness of God's plan in the universe to exalt Christ. It's not about that, though it is. The main point of the passage is to love like Jesus and his reward that he got, his exaltation in the end of all things is a picture and a promise of the reward that awaits you if you follow his example in love and humility. The summons to love this way, like Jesus did, when clearly communicated, can feel like a burden. Or is that just me? One of the most frequent comments I get about my preaching, other than it's too long, is that it may be just a bit too heavy. But when we're talking about something like love, love like Christ did, look at his example and love like him, it's not a, well, you know, when you get a chance... When, when it's convenient for you. This is serious. And it is now your responsibility, your obligation to love like Christ. So that can feel heavy. But I'm just trying to be faithful to the glory of these texts. But part of the glory, the gravitas of this text is that if you follow in Christ's example, then the glory that is given to Christ in his exaltation is yours too. There is great reward in glory for those who take hold of the mind of Christ and a life of humble love like he did. Paul says he's considered everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He's counted everything as rubbish that he might gain Christ. There is reward for those who live this way. This, is, this makes sense of how Jesus says so frequently, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. There is reward to live this way. Just read the promises in the Revelation to John with all the letters to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant that he will sit on the throne with me and rule the nations, and I will give him a new name. And in Hebrews 12, which I can't wait to get to, it talks about this city that has foundations that can't be shaken. You haven't come to Mount Zion with fire and smoke and trembling. You've come to Mount Zion with all of the firstborn's assembly gathered in festival garb and praising the Lamb. This city that has foundations that can't be shaken. This is what God has prepared for those who live like Christ. There is great reward and faith comes first, dear friends. You can't live like this or love like this unless you can see from afar this reward and want it. If you're not loving like this, then maybe you don't really believe in the one who set the example. If you have no desire to live sacrificially and humbly and have the same mind with your brothers and sisters, then maybe you don't clearly perceive Christ. The kingdom... Filled with his people 
in the fullness of joy forever with him and praising him is the joy that was set before Christ himself. And it's that same joy that is before you today as motivation to live and love this way. Do not be one who disbelieves, but today be one who believes. Let's pray. Father, there is always more to be said, but I pray that you would strengthen us by your word and cause us, as we look to Christ, to change in our inner being so that we would love like he did. In Jesus' name, amen.